Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. So my name is Nick. I am the youth pastor here, and Charlie and Andy are off skiing, so that means I get to preach. Lucky for you and for me, we're all going to have a great time. I promise. It's going to be good. I love that song, Glorify Thy Name. Did anybody else grow up hearing that song when they were younger? Like that's, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, so that song usually lasted 15 minutes. <laughs> Just lots and lots of press are coming up and asking people to do things. What a, that was a... I draw some memories up. Um, so my name again, I'm Nick, and so I'm very happy to be here. We are going to do something very interesting today. Charlie, uh, as you know, he's been going through this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and this is kind of an in-betweener. And so he said to me, he's like, Nick, I need you to find your favorite prayer, and I want you to preach on that. And I was like, all right, no problem. And so I took a week, and I started looking through, and I realized, hey, I don't really have a favorite. There's, there's so very many that are excellent and amazing and full of stuff to teach on, I really just couldn't pick. And the ones I did pick uh, that I really liked, Charlie was like, these aren't really prayers. And I was like, you know what, you're right. They're more like prayer adjacent. Uh, they're like right before or after a prayer. And so I ended up landing on a passage of prayer from Jesus that I've never heard anybody teach on. I've never heard a message on this before. I've never been to a Bible study. I've never read a book on these things. This was a new thing for me. Um, And so I've never taught on it. I've never been taught on it. So this week and last week, I've been discovering this for the first time. There are things in this passage that I've never really considered until this week that I hadn't really thought about. And so it's been really fun to just kind of discover this. And so hopefully that excitement that I felt while discovering these things can kind of translate and we can all leave very excited about some new stuff. Maybe you're super smart and you've already done these things. And so, you know, maybe you should come do it if that's what you want to do. Um, So, okay, I want to tell you, before I get into that, I need to tell you a little story. Uh, So my family is crazy, and that's normal, I think, at this point. Uh, We have three children, and my sister lives with us, and it's a great family. And I love living there. I love being part of, I love everything about it. Morning times, I don't love. Morning times are dangerous. Morning times are full of chaos. And if something is going to go wrong in our house, it's going to go wrong in the morning time. Nobody in our house is a morning person. Um, and so when you put all those things together, it doesn't super go, go super well. And if you've heard me teach before, you've probably heard me make fun of the fact that our son, typically, our, he's, he's four, right? He's four. Our four-year-old typically gets in bed with us around 2 a.m. every day. And he only pees in the bed about half the time. And so this happened to be one of the days that he didn't. So that's great. We got a good start to the day. Nobody peed in my bed. Um, But so we're sleeping and it's, you know, early in the morning and Cash, my son, he gets up and he walks out, which is great. And then I don't know if you've ever heard that, that just, it's that beautiful sound, just really, really brings flurries of joy to your heart. It just makes you feel lighter. It's, it's like a Celine Dion song, this, the whininess of your son, just that high-pitched whine sound just really makes you feel good. And so I hear that coming down the hall. And so I realize it's probably time to wake up. Uh, it's much more powerful than any alarm that I can set. 
that sound wakes me up. And so I get up and I see him and I'm waiting to see something frustrating, like whether he's spilled something all over himself, he's gone out of the room to pee his pants. I don't know. He's very selective about where he does that. And so he looks fine. He looks normal. But then I notice that there's a very particular aroma that has accompanied him into the room. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, It's very powerful and it's hard to shake. You know, it kind of sticks with you. And I look down and I see the source of the aroma is this very kind of sticky brown substance on his foot. Uh, really kind of jammed in between the toes, you know, like when you just grab something really squishy and it just gets right in there. Is that a good image for everybody? We tracking with me? Um, so he's got this and I ask him, I'm like, hey, buddy, what, what happened? Did you step in something? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I'm like, well, I know it's not your fault. I'm not mad at you. Did you step in poop? No. Yes, you did. Uh, so I hand him over to my wife to get him in the bathtub and deal with it. And I go and follow the tracks of poopy footprints through the house to find the source. And sure enough, there it is right on this nice long runner rug that we have in the hallway. There's this big solid smear right into the carpet. Um, and so I get to work cleaning that nonsense up. Uh, and then, so my wife is bathing my son in the room. And all this is before 7 a.m., by the way. So we're all doing these things, and I'm cleaning this. And then my daughters come into the kitchen, and they start fighting over who gets to pour whose cereal. They're yelling at each other. I tell them to stop. Then they walk into the kitchen, and I, they trip over my foot and spill both of their cereal bowls on top of me. And so here I am laying on the carpet, just rubbing it poop out of a carpet and I get cereal spilled all over me and everything's just going great. It's a good morning. And then I finally kind of accomplish the cleaning of the carpet. I feel pretty good about it. And then my wife comes in after finishing cleaning up my son and she's like, just throw the rug out. Like she's in her, I don't want to be here mode as well because it's morning time and she's frustrated and I've just cleaned the dang thing and she wants me to throw it away. So we get into a little bit of an argument and that was just, just, I just thought I'd share that with you. I think you should know about my life. And that was a great morning I had this week. It was full of chaos and disunity and everybody was kind of out for themselves. And I'm not saying that to be uh, critical of my family. It's just the way it was. Morning time comes around. We're not thinking as a team. We're just thinking about how can I not have a problem? And that ends up causing all kinds of problems. Today, we are going to look at a passage of scripture in John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. And if you have a Bible of some kind, whether it's the phone kind or the iPad kind or the book, actual physical book kind, I would suggest turning to the book of John chapter 17, remove your finger down the page till you get to verse 20, and we're going to camp out in six verses there from 20 to 26. Uh, That might be seven verses. I'm not good at math. Um, Now, before we get into that, I want to give you some context of why we're here and what's happened before and what's going to happen after. So this is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. They have done a lot of cool things tonight uh, on this night. And from 13 to this chapter 17, Jesus does all of the big hits of Jesus. Like you ever stayed up late at night when TV had commercials like this and you'd see the, the CDs that you can buy, like the discographies of all the really cool love songs of the 80s and they're like playing all the hits? I think of that when I read these verses because these are all the big hits of Jesus. From 13 to 17, he's washing the disciples' feet, including Judas, by the way. I feel like people forget that. That when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he also washed Judas's feet. I just think that's interesting. Nothing to do with my sermon. Just thought I'd throw that out there. 
So during these things, he's saying all these things like um, he talks about how one of them will betray you. We've all heard that before. A new commandment I give to you that you would love one another as I have loved you. He tells Peter that he's going to deny him. He says the I am the way, the truth, and the life. He gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. He talks about how I am the vine. You are the branches. No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. You will turn your sorrow into joy. I've overcome the world. These are the big hits of Jesus, and they're all happening right here in this room right before we get to this. Now, a lot of times in Jesus's life and his teaching ministry, he spoke in parables. He spoke in roundabout ways. He would give them a story that had a hidden meaning and he'd wait for the people to try and find it. He wouldn't always land the plane for him. He'd let them try and figure it out. Not here, not this night. This night is all for nothing. He's going for broke. He's giving them everything he's got. Now, I don't know if some of you have ever have, like, dropped your kids off at college before and you realize, oh my gosh, this is my last chance to kind of push them out into the world and give them that final bit of advice. Uh, This is Jesus's last chance to really give these guys that final push before he goes. So this is a significant moment. This is an important moment. And so what we're going to look at is a prayer that Jesus prays after all of this, after all these things that he said. And right before he goes with his disciples down to a garden and gets arrested by Judas and they scatter. So before he does that, he prays this prayer. Uh, I imagine that he does not do the hold my hands thing, because I don't like that. And I like my Jesus to do the things that I like. And so I'm going to assume that he was like, we're not going to hold hands, guys, because that's weird. We're just going to sit here and I'm going to pray. So he's praying in the beginning, in these first few verses, he's praying specifically for these disciples, for the guys in the room. He's praying for them. And then in verse 20, he does something different. He shifts and he begins to pray for us. He begins to pray for you and for me, for the church, for those who would believe because of the work of the disciples, he prays for them. And that's, that's us. Again, that's significant. Jesus is praying for you, for me, the church, for all of those who came after the disciples. He's praying for them. So let's see what he's going to do. If I'm going to imagine Jesus' last words, like the last thing that he wants, the thing that he wants most for us, I would imagine he would probably say something about, I pray that they would multiply and that the church would just grow and grow and grow. That'd be a good thing to pray. Or for faithfulness, that they would remain faithful. Unlike Israel had for so many years just come back and forth, faithfulness, non-faithfulness, that he prayed, maybe he would pray that they would stay faithful. They would have endurance, steadfastness, boldness, righteousness, obedience, all these kinds of things. Honestly, if I was guessing what he was going to pray, I would not guess what he does pray for. Let's look at it. John 17, starting in verse 20, he says this, I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, so he's praying for us. This is what he wants to pray. This is it. This is the crucial phrase. His prayer for us is that they may all be one. For those who will believe in me through the word of the disciples, I pray that they may all be one. That was surprising to me. I did not expect that. 
And, and really, and if you think about it, you go back pages and pages and pages. You look all the way back to like Genesis 6. The world was united at a certain point. Let's see what they were united under. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The single-minded focus of man, the united single-minded focus was evil. And God said, nope, not doing that. Wiped it away. Started again with a new family. He divided that. He separated and he started again. And then generations later, we see these men get together, these people, these families, and say, you know what? We can do something great. We are united. We all speak the same language. We're all living in the same area. Why don't we figure out how to get to God? Let's do whatever we can do to be in the presence of God, because we can do it. We're united. We're powerful. We're, we're capable. We've invented this new thing called bricks. Let's build something. Let's make it huge so that it reaches to God himself, and we can be united and equal with him. Let's do that. God comes down and says, no, it's not, no. Not this. That's not it. He says, behold, they are one people. They're united. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible because they are united. He says, for them, come, let us go down and confuse their language to divide them so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. God divided. Where there was unity, he divided. Then he separated Abraham from his people, divided him and sent him to Canaan. Then one of Canaan, one of Abraham's descendants named Joseph was separated from his family and brought to Egypt as a slave. And then he separated the whole family of Israel from their land, Canaan, and brought them all to Egypt. Then after many years, he finally gives them a kingdom. They have a land, they have a king, they have everything they wanted. And then he divides them again, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, division. And then after that, he finally just divides them, separates them from the land entirely. Division, 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 division. He's seeing all this division all the time. And now at the end of his life, he's here on earth. He's done what he's been called to do. He's done all the things he needs to do. He has one last thing to do. He has one last prayer for his people. And of all the things that he could pray for, he asks for unity, for oneness. That's significant. This is what he wants most for us. And I got to be honest, my first reactions are that is, that, is, that is a bold prayer. It is a big, fat prayer. Which makes sense because Jesus' prayers are bold. Historically, you look at what Jesus prays for, they're big, fat things. Just last week when Charlie was talking about, um, what, what was it? It's uh, my, the, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's enormous. That's not just, I pray that they would behave. I pray that they would be good. It's, I want their will to be so synonymous with mine that it would be as if heaven was already here. That's enormous. That's bold and huge. And in just a little while after he prays, he's going to go to the garden and he's going to pray and he say, God, if, if it's possible, I know we've been setting this up for millennium. Since Adam and Eve, we have been thinking and praying and moving towards this day. But if it's possible, maybe we could postpone it. If it is thy will, take this cup from me. Maybe we can do something else. That's, that's bold. That's huge. That's not timid. That's not nervous to be in the, in the presence of God and ask for the things he wants. God, Jesus is bold in his prayers. And if you walk out of here today, honestly, if, if I just shut this down and this was the end of my sermon, I'd be fine with that. If we walked out of this room thinking, man, I want my prayers to be bolder, that would be great. That is a good thing to take away from this. But let's keep going. Because see, if God truly wants us to be one, I have some questions. I need some answers. I, I want to know, what does he mean by one? What does he mean by that? 
I want to know why is being one so important? Why is this what he wants most for us? And lastly, I want to know how do we do that? Like, okay, if that's what it is and this is why it's important, how are we supposed to actually do that? Let's see if the text can answer any of these questions. So again, with verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Okay, that's what he wants. Now, what does that mean? Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. What does he mean by one? Okay, here's what he means. Be like the Trinity. Be like myself and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Just be one even as we are one. That's not a simple answer, but that's what the text says. Read it again. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Be one as the Trinity is one. Okay, if I look at that, what I see, what I'm, what I'm getting from this is he wants us, as the Trinity does, to have a singular focus. You know, Charlie talked about this months ago, talking about being pure in heart means to have a singular focus, that we are devoted to one thing together. So what is that one thing? Well, this singular focus is, is so revolutionary and extraordinary. It is something that spans all ethnicities, all races, all creeds and colors and countries and languages and size and d- division, no matter what wall you're behind, what building you live in, what hole you found yourself living in, like wherever you are, whatever you are, whoever you are, your focus can be this, to make his name known. No matter who you are, what you do, what you look like, how much money you have, what you don't have, we can unite behind Make his name known. And earlier in this sermon that he's giving these people in John, in John 13 through 17, he, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In order to make his name known, we have to be a loving community. What does that look like? Well, it actually kind of happens in Acts. We see this. We see a sample. Acts 4, the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul, united. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The first step in being a loving community is drastic open-handedness, claiming ownership over nothing. All that we have is given to us by God. And if we are to hold tightly to any of that, it breaks the spirit of generosity. A loving community is marked by one with drastic open-handedness. And in in Galatians, another thing Paul says, he says, we should be sharing one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. If we're going to be a loving community, we cannot let any of us go through struggle alone. Nobody in our community, nobody who is united to us can be hurting by themselves. Bear one another's burdens. Seek out those who are hurting, those who are lost, those who are confused, those who are angry, those who are struggling with anything. We bear their burdens together. Loving community, open-handedness, bearing one another's burdens. And then in Ephesians 4, 15, Paul says, speaking 
the truth in love. If we're going to be a community that's loving and making his name known as our singular focus, we need to be able to go to each other and speak the truth to them in love. Someone's stepping out of what we believe is helpful for this community. Someone is not being unified to us. Someone is falling away from what we believe God wants for them in their lives. And we feel a word to go and say, hey, I want to help you. I want to bring you back where you need to be. We don't go to them in anger. We don't go to them in frustration. We don't go to them saying, man, you're screwing up. We go to them in love. That is the difficult part. If it was just speak the truth to people. Then we could just be saying our mind all the time. We could just speak our mind. You're doing this. You're doing that. You shouldn't be doing this. You should be better at this. We could just speak the truth all the time. That would be following the scripture. But Paul was very specific with that prepositional phrase, in love. If we are going to be a loving community with a singular focus, united around making name known, we need to be able to speak the truth in love. That takes patience. That takes courage. That takes boldness. That takes a lot. And the last thing I want to say about this, we need to be one in sharing failure. This is exemplified beautifully in the next week or so after this prayer. Peter fails tremendously in about an hour from this. Peter is told by Jesus, you're going you're gonna to deny me. He's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And then he goes and he denies him three times. Jesus sees him. He goes down just like he said he was. And let me tell you, if Peter was an employee in a business, he'd be fired that day. Gone. You don't trash my company publicly and then expect to keep working for me. You're out. Oh, and Paul, Paul, you want to destroy my business and then you think you can come in and work for me? Absolutely not. You tried to tear me down. You're out. That's, that's typically how business works, right? And that's definitely probably a good idea. It's not a terrible idea. And if we as a church were supposed to operate as a business, then we would practice those things. But Jesus says, no. No, failure does not exclude us from the community. He takes Peter and he gives him the keys to the kingdom. He puts Peter in charge of the whole thing. And Paul, the one who tried to destroy him, he makes him his chief ambassador to the world. You know, I, uh, I've worked in a couple churches, and uh, I've only been fired once. One time. And I'm going to share that story with you, but here's the good thing about it. It was years ago. I'm never going to do this again. And uh, Charlie's not here, so it's fine. So I was working at a church, and we took a group of middle school kids to Galveston on a mission trip, and it was really fun. We were staying at a church in the area. We were going and working with this organization and helping build things and clean things and meet with people and play with kids. It was awesome. And then one night, we went to an ice cream place, and we took all the kids, and we had four vans and like 15 people in each van and a bunch of adults, and we go to this ice cream place, and we get a bunch of treats, fill them up with sugar, and then it's time to go back. And so... We get everybody outside, we line them up in their van groups, and we have the adults count. I do a count. We've done a double count. Everybody's there. We're accounted for. Super. Did my job. Then it takes about three or four minutes for the vans to actually pull up because they had to go walk and get them and then drive them up. And so everybody's told, just stay in your lines and wait for your van. So I'm talking to somebody, and I don't notice that somebody in one of the van lines decides it's time to go to the bathroom. And so he leaves his line goes inside. Nobody saw him. Nobody noticed. And he's going to the bathroom. The vans show up. Everybody piles in. We leave. Should we have noticed there was an empty seat? Probably, but we're not here to debate that. 
It's not important. So the six-year-old kid comes out of the bathroom. Six, sorry, sixth grader. That is a very different story. Very different story. Sixth grader. Okay, sixth grader, still not great, comes out and everybody's gone and he starts to freak out and a woman walking up just sees him and says, buddy, are you okay? Is everything all right? And he's like, no, my group just left me. And it just so happened that a police cruiser was coming down the street and she said, sir, is there any, like just flags him down, sir, this kid lost his group. This is where they're staying. Could you maybe take him? And he's like, sure, no problem. Hop in. Um, they let the kid play with Siren. It was fun. And then he gets back. And we had just realized that he's gone, and the cop guy pulls up, knocks on the door, and there he is. We bring him in. It's fine. He's calm. I call the parents. They laugh about it because apparently he does this all the time. And they were hoping that this would scare the crap out of him, and maybe he won't do it again. Um, Call my boss. He seemed fine with it. Uh, And we kind of go back to normal. And I figure, okay, everything's probably okay. The next morning, uh, back at home, they had a meeting and they voted to fire me. Just, he's gone. I didn't know. There were still three days left on the mission trip, so I finish the thing. Uh, We come home, we get everything unpacked, we get everybody back home. I see the parents, they're laughing, we hug, everybody's fine. Uh, And then I go home and I get the call, hey, we had to let you go. And it's immediate, well, you come pick up your stuff, but it's over. I failed, and they acted quickly, and that's fine. I am not telling this story to justify my behavior or to make them look evil. I'm just pointing out that this is the natural reaction of humanity. We, pe- we see people fail, we get nervous, we get scared, we say, all right, you got to go. Now, if we want to be a loving community with a singular focus of making his name known, we need to act differently. We should be one in sharing possessions, drastic open-handedness. We should be one in sharing our problems, bear one another's burdens. We should be one in sharing truth. And we cannot take failure and forget that Jesus turns failure into wisdom, into experience, into truth, into great, wonderful things. So what does it mean to be one? It means all of these things. It means we need to have a singular focus and we need to be a loving community. Here's the next question, and this answer is a lot shorter. Why is that so important? Why is being one so crucial? The answer is in the text. It says, so that he has said all these things that he said, that, Jesus, that we would be one as, as even as we are one. And then he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The stakes are high. It's so important to be one because being one will cause the world to believe. That unity will cause the world to believe. People, we get this right, people will believe. The flip side of that coin is if we don't get it right, if we're marked by division, we will be the reason that people do not believe. People leave church because they've been to church. People leave churches. People walk away 
from their faith a lot of times because they've seen division. They've been and they've seen they're fighting over this. They're arguing over that. They're making this important. They're not doing these things. There's no unity. If we get this right, people will believe. If we don't, people won't. The stakes are high. Jesus prayed that we, the church, us in this room and those meeting throughout the world today and any other time that they meet, the church would be so unified, so united under this common purpose that those outside the church would look in and believe just because of our oneness. This is the prayer of Jesus. Why is it so important? Because we get this right, people will believe. Now, here's the last question. How are we supposed to do that? Because let me be honest, my example of my little morning story with my kids and my family, a lot of times, I mean, that's, that's division at its finest. And if you want me to take that and turn it into unity, I need some steps here because this is a big gap. The, the division and chaos of my heart to turn to unity, I need some help getting there because I'm not there. How are we supposed to do this? To be one, even as he is one with the Father. How are we supposed to do this? I'll be honest with you guys. I got, I got kind of stuck here for a little bit. When I was looking through this passage and I was studying and, and trying to figure this out, I got stuck. And it took me a minute. So I want, I want you to hear this and I want it to sink in because it's, it's not a simple statement. But I think, it's, I think it's incredibly crucial. This is what it is. To the degree that you believe, to the degree that you believe, truly believe that right now, in this moment, and every other moment after it, that God loves you as much as he loves the Son. To the degree that you believe that, you will become capable of loving the people around you. You ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Like if we are hurt and damaged people, we can kind of pass it on to others. What I'm seeing here is loved people love people. Let me say it another way. When you get married, whether you're rich or poor, if you marry somebody, you inherit the wealth of that other person. So if you marry rich, good for you, congratulations. I'd love to invite you to lunch. Maybe you can pay for it. If you marry rich, you become rich. That's how it works. That's how our laws work. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to accumulate that wealth. But if you marry into it, it's yours. You are co-heirs of that money, of that wealth. Here's the thing, guys. The Bible says that you aren't saved by your good deeds. You aren't saved by your ability to accumulate great things. You are saved because you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done. Jesus lived a heroic, radically loving life. And the moment you become united to him in salvation, all the wealth of righteousness, heroism, love, glory becomes yours. All of it. And so when Jesus says in this prayer, how are we supposed to do that? Here's the answer. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. How are we supposed to do that? With the glory we've inherited through Christ. 
with the power, with the strength, with the love, with all of the things that Jesus is, that he's given to us. That is how. It is not through your own works. It is not through your own reminding. It's not by us getting together and getting t-shirts that say united on it. That's not going to do it. Even if we all shave our beards to just have this and no mustache, that's an Amish joke. Uh, That's not going to do it either. We can't do it. It is only through the example, power, and glory given to us by our loving Savior, Jesus. The more you accept that radical amount of love that has been lavished on you, the more radical your love can be for other people. So let's review. What does Jesus mean by be one? That we would be a singularly focused on making his name known by being a radically loving community. Why is that so important? Because if we get this right, people will believe. How are we supposed to do this? Through the example, power, and glory given to us by our loving Savior, Jesus. Because this is a significant prayer. Jesus is giving us his last thing, the thing he wants most for us, and that thing is to be one. And this is, looking at the text, this is what I see for how we do this. Here's the cool thing, though. Jesus isn't finished praying yet. Starting in verse 24, he goes on. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And it's amen and they're gone. As I read this, I don't know, maybe this is just me and where I am in my life or what's going on in my heart, but I read this and and I hear this. I hear, Father, I'm going to miss these guys. I've been doing life with them and I'm going to miss them. And I want them to come where I'm going. I look forward to the day that we'll be reunited, reunited in your presence. That I can stand here with these guys and say, God, here we are. God, I did what you sent me to do. I've lived like you told me to live. I've loved, I've healed, I've spoken. I've, I've, I've done everything that you called me to do that I'm supposed to do. I, I built this little community. It's not perfect. I mean... Just a little while ago, they were arguing about who will be greatest in the kingdom. But here they are. They know me and I know you. And I've told them all about you. And Father, I'm ready to finish what we started. I'm ready to see them and those who come after them spread love all around the world. I, I, I'm i not capable of entering the mind of Jesus, but when I read this, I, I think, I imagine that his mind goes back to that day when they stood before Adam and Eve and said, guys, this is what's going to happen now. And then they looked at the serpent and said, and you, there's going to come a day where one of this woman's descendants is going to end you. There's going to be a day when this descendant of this woman will come and will finish, complete this work and you will no longer be a hindrance to me being with my people. Jesus is on the cusp 
of finishing this work and the enemy has no idea. And I just imagine the joy and the excitement and the nervousness and the fear that's in his heart when he finishes and he says like, I'm ready to see them and those who come after them spread love all around the world. I'm ready for that barrier that has been there to be lifted and for the world to be united under the love for me. I'm ready to inhabit the hearts of the world. Guys, when God looked down on the people back in Genesis in that Tower of Babel story and he looked down on those people and he saw what they'd done and he saw their united spirit and he looked and saw what they accomplished, he said, not yet. Not yet. It's not time yet. And then after this prayer, just a couple months later, God looks down again and he sees a divided people. People divided that just crucified him. And he sees them meeting in a room and all of a sudden a wind sweeps in and fire rests on their heads and the languages that were once confused, the the world that was once dispersed was brought together again, united again under a common tongue, speaking and praising the name of God in the presence of God, accomplishing that which they thought they could do themselves now through the power and work of the Holy Spirit was accomplished. They are in the presence of God. They have found themselves face to face with their savior and it has brought unity, oneness through the glory and love of God. We are unified. Let me pray. God, we need you. We pray that you would continue this work of unity in our hearts that you would continue to draw us closer together to each other under this common and singular focus of making your name known, that the world might know you. God, we, we call on that power and that strength to dwell within us. We ask that you would inhabit our hearts and move us in that direction and keep us from idle, self-interested things that we would rather focus more on you and what you have for us and that we would be united under that purpose. God, I pray these things knowing that you yourself prayed them so long ago. Through the name of Jesus, your son.